News. 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 New York City. F-A-Q. Welcome to FAQ NYC. I'm host Harry Siegel. Thanks to the miracle of time travel and editing, I'm here recording this intro despite showing up in the middle of the episode. Joined by Professor Christina Greer and producer Alex Brooklyn. We're recording from Alex's rent stabilized apartment, which is significant this week because the rent is too damn high. Over the course of my adult life, the city has been shedding rent-stabilized units. Tenants' protections have been getting lost in theory and in practice. And distress has shifted from landlords to tenants. Are you the new landlord? I am the new landlord. Joining us to talk about this is State Senator Zellner Myrie, who's part of the new Democratic majority in the state Senate, and part of this new day in which they're pushing to reverse some of these trends. He's helped introduce a nine-bill package that would, among other things, extend the rent stabilization system statewide, get rid of the cap after which units are just freed to go on the market for whatever landlords can get for them, and otherwise help create a new equilibrium in a city where the rent is too damn high and seems to always be getting higher. The United States is the most prosperous nation of modern times. It promises to every citizen equal rights to enjoy life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The roof, the roof, roof leaks. The toilet runs all day. It's just ruthless. It's ruthless. F-A-Q-Q-Q-Q. Hi, I'm Christina Greer, and today we have my state senator, Zellner Myrie, and his director of communications, Jonathan Tim, that's Tim with two M's, and my former student and staffer, Carmen Chow... So we're very excited. We're in Alex Brooklyn's rent-stabilized apartment, and hopefully my state senator will walk us through the difference between rent-stabilized, rent-controlled, because some people, like myself, are still a touch confused. But before we jump into it, um, A, thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. Go Rams. Let's go. The go Ramily. Fordham. The Ramily. The Ramily. We've got Carmen, we've got the state <laughs> senator, and I teach at Fordham, as many of you know. So just walk us through your journey here, right? I'm looking at... A fresh-faced state senator. <laughs> How did this happen, and what motivated you to run? You know, it is. Uh, it's still surreal to me that I'm a state senator. Uh, it's wild. <laughs> you got a pin because, and everything. Yeah, yeah, I got the official pin. Um, on my way here, I was stopped two times, like walking to the train station, and people want to talk to me about issues that are affecting them. And this is something, of course, that doesn't happen to regular folks. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm still adjusting to that life. But the reason that I ran is really because of housing. You know, mm-hmm. I grew up in a rent-stabilized apartment. I knew that we had these impending uh, rent regulation expirations coming up. And I felt like the representation that we had in my district wasn't adequate. You know, I had all these grand policy ideas. I went to people and I said, I'm thinking about running for office and it's because of housing and criminal justice reform. And they said, Z, that's all good and nice, but can you raise money? Uh, mm. That was the first, that was a threshold question. And I had never run for office before, had never raised money in that capacity. Uh, but we ended up doing it. We caught some momentum and the people had me. So right. that's how I'm here. And you ran against a pretty strong incumbent, right? That's right. We were outraised. This was someone who had been in the public sphere for about 20 years. Someone who had done, I think, some good work in the community, had name recognition. A lot of people told me not to do this, uh, mm. including close friends, some of my mentors. They said, Z, you're crazy. Incumbents don't lose. Uh, why don't you start it running for something a little mm-hmm. smaller? But we ended up, I think, uh, being victorious because we uh, went door to door. You know, I like mm-hmm. to say, continue to say door to door, 
wins the war. I think that's how, I mean, everything I heard when I went around asking people what they thought about the new anti-IDC candidates. Biagi Ocasio-Cortez, you, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez wasn't running against an IDC candidate, but still, when I walked around these districts, it was everybody had met you guys. Like, Mm -hmm. from Edgewater in the Bronx, where they're not voting Democrat. I mean... In general, Um, City Island, a lot of those people aren't voting Democrat. They had still all met and shaken hands with Alexandra Biagi. Well, retail politics matters. Yeah. And that's what, when I was walking up and down Empire, Mm -hmm. uh, where your office was Mm -hmm. and like all around that neighborhood, everybody had met you. Even if they weren't going to vote for you, they had met you. And I think that's the way to do it. I think it informs how we are conducting our policy decisions now, too. Because I don't feel beholden uh, to any particular special interests. Um, I'm thinking about the people that I met on the campaign trail, the people that I still see now, the people that I run into on the train. This is, like I I think, the way to run for office uh, because there are some real serious policy consequences if you don't do it that way. And so before we shift away from your election, hi, Harry Siegel. Harry Siegel just arrived from uh, what I guessed was a child care crisis, which is why he is late today. My phone is uh, was my lost child. Oh, no. <laughs> well, I mean, I will say this. Harry just came in, and Carmen knows this. If you come in late, you can't come in with a cup of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> oh, yeah. Harry has you know a I love you. cup of Starbucks. Like a, fresh, a, cup of, a fresh cup. Fresh cup. It's hot, people. <laughs> and I was going to text you to ask for coffee, and then I was like, no, Harry's in a crisis per his text, so he's rushing here, so he won't have time to get me a coffee, so I did not text Lo him. and behold. Lo and behold. <laughs> Lo and behold. You know, when behold. people uh, have kids and they say crisis, you just give them all the room. Oh, I <laughs> give you all the passes. I, I didn't like... know that it was like, oh, sorry, my bed was so comfy this morning, I just couldn't get it. Okay, so here's the deal. Let me bring you up to speed. Uh, fine, state fine. Senator was telling us about his journey. I'm looking here. You beat an incumbent with 54% of the vote as a first-time candidate. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, I mean, people would ask me at every juncture of the race, uh, do you think you have a shot? And do you think you're going to win? It's like, you don't get into the race if you think you're going to lose. We thought that we had a good chance because of the issues, because we knew that we were right on housing. We knew we were right on criminal justice reform. We knew we were right on the host of progressive legislation that was being held up by an artificial majority, I still had the same jitters in the general election, right? Everyone says, oh, you win the primary and the primary that's it. The election. Yeah, but it's like, nah, that's not it. Uh, my opponent ran again on two mm-hmm. other lines, um, and then we won by like 93%. I was like at the bar watching the results come in, and people were like, Z, how you feeling, man? Like, it's right. looking good. And I'm like, until Errol Lewis says... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was like, right. I was like, <laughs> your one that yeah, night. Yeah, 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 I was there. Professor Greer, right? <laughs> until y'all say that the race is called, uh, I cannot relax. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm sorry. Winning 93% of the vote is what my dad would call, you beat him like he stole something. <laughs> so, sorry about that, Senator Hamilton, but those are facts. Um, okay, so you win you're coming in with a new crop new energy um, I see that you're the chair of the elections committee and I know that a lot of folks will will have you talk about housing in a, in a moment but I do want you to walk us through being chair of the elections committee because I find that to be incredibly important especially I'm assuming you're dealing with campaign finance and sort of making sure our elections run a bit more smoothly because New York State quite honestly is an embarrassment it is compared an embarrassment. to 
I would say what thirty eight other states. That's right? exactly right. You know, I've I've said throughout my um, long and illustrious tenure uh, as as chair <laughs> of the elections committee uh, that my goal is to take New York from worst to first, right? And there are a lot of common sense election reforms that we were losing to other states on. So the very first bill debated in session uh, was my early voting bill, and here we have New York. This alleged progressive bastion in the country, yet 37 other states had early voting. We did not. Right? And so the honor, I think, in, in being the chair of the Elections Committee is we get to do some of that big stuff, but we also get to look at some of the little things that affect elections. Right? We saw in 2018 um, the elections ground to a halt because of a perforated ballot. So you know we're looking at legislation to fix that as well. And, and I have looked at the Elections Committee through a civil rights prism. You know We know that voting rights in the ballot box has been used to oppress people of color. Uh, And so I think we have a lot of opportunities as well to bring new voices uh, as we expand our democracy. What was that crazy thing, the special elections that you guys went on and on about, about how it was like crazy, it was on a Tuesday, and it was mired in secrecy, essentially. When we were talking about the special elections way, 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 way back. For the public advocate? or Not for the public advocate. This is in before September? the public. Yeah, we in September. We had a lot of elections. Yep. And we had a lot of elections at different points that not that many people knew there were That's elections. Right. And it was actually, it was sort of cool for some of the insurgents here because we had a weird special election for Congress before the anti-IDC slate special election that like built momentum and oh my god this this could actually be happening. What year were you born? I was born in 1986. So- oh lord. <laughs> <laughs> I was watching Gummy Bears and like <laughs> Silver Spoon <laughs> playing with my Cabbage Patch Dolls and riding my bike called Heather. Cabbage Patch Dolls. <laughs> Ooh. That was very specific, right, but right, I know exactly right, right. where it was. And it skates. <laughs> Mrs. Pac-Man skates. Ooh. Shout out to whoever wrote the Gummy Bear song. Is that, that is Bouncing gorgeous. here and there and everywhere. Yeah. Are we about to do this? Because I will go in right now. <laughs> We're about to do this. Hold on. Gummy like, Bears. Do it. Do Gummy it. Do bears. it. Do it. No, I won't. <laughs> oh, you want to. And so, I had a muzzle. You were born 12 years after we had an emergency set of laws in Albany. Mm-hmm. Um, Right about when you became a grown-up, I think, uh, Pataki was governor, and those laws got worse in some ways. Can, can you just sort of go through the history of this emergency we have that, you know, the New York Post will point out has been going on in some sense since World War II, and how this artificial majority has made things worse, and, and what we need to be correcting, sort of, sort of the big picture of how we uh, got into this rent-is-too-damn-high mess. That's that's exactly right. So, if I can, let me start from the Great Depression, right? Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, right. <laughs> Right. Four so, score <laughs> seven years ago. Oh, Goonies. What to talk about. Goonies? Goonies, the, the fat kid chunk, right? No, uh, they have Harry. him and they're like. <laughs> okay, first of all, I don't think you're allowed to say that. I don't think tell, you're allowed to say that. Tell us what you anymore. know. <laughs> okay, P.S., just as a total right. side note. The thing that freaked me out about Goonies was when that weird, creepy guy ate that Babe Ruth, and I can't eat a Baby Ruth chocolate bar <laughs> to this day. It scared the bejesus out of me. I'm like, seriously, like if I see a Baby Ruth, do you mean the I'm guy like, with the that disfigurement eye or yeah. whatever? That's God. what I okay, see. In so my we've head. got fat shaming. <laughs> right. We have like Jeez. disfigurement. Right. demographic of the podcast listeners are going to be offended. Work this in. Work this into what happened to uh, to the rent, please. Right, right, right. Exactly. Perfect segue to the Great Depression. So New York City passes rent control in the 1920s in response to a housing crisis. I think this is an important place to start because a lot of times people say, well, there's no way that we can expand rent regulation and rent control because the city has never been like that. In fact, 
when we first did this back in the 1920s, the overwhelming majority of our tenant units were rent controlled, right? So we passed that, we have that. Then we see this disinvestment from the federal government in the 60s, 70s, and the 80s, right? We see intentional racism by way of redlining and directing resources to the suburbs. And so that's when you see big abandonment of properties. Uh, We have, you know, major state of disrepair in our housing in the city. So in 1974, we passed the state does the Emergency Tenant Protection Act uh, in response to this. And this was to keep our rent-regulated units affordable. Now, what we have seen since then is an erosion of the principles that were put forth in the Emergency Tenant Protection Act. So in 1994, the city council still had some purview over our rent laws. We know that um, some of that was transferred to the state by way of the Erdstadt law. Uh, but the city council in 1994 passes our first, um, what, what is commonly known as vacancy decontrol, right? And so that says uh, if the rent goes up to a certain amount, that unit is no longer regulated under the rent stabilization laws. Then in 1997... The state legislature follows, uh, but they not only institute vacancy decontrol, they institute something called a vacancy bonus. So that any time a rent-stabilized or rent-controlled unit is vacated, a landlord is entitled to a 20% increase in that rent. Now, there's some finer details there, but that is the most that they can claim. I think that this is one of the more interesting things. So basically, a lot of people don't know that it's not the person that's stabilized. It's the unit itself. So when they, they don't even know to ask or to check on the rent history because they think, oh, the person was stabilized before me. And they don't really know their rights when they move into a unit or to check. And then there's all this tricky stuff with, uh, oh, we're going to do, I'm doing air quotes, we're going to do renovations. And then we can take a certain percentage of that renovation and up the rent with it. And you're like, "Um, are these renovations even real? Because I look around at a lot of these apartments. Uh, and it's and it's and it's shady, right? And yeah. so you know this this the the issue of whether or not you know what your rent history is when you can look. This is also something that happened in, in 1997. The state legislature said we're going to cap how long you can look back on the rent history, and we're going to say you only can look back four years. Right. So you even if you had the wherewithal, you could only look back four years. So this is happening in 1997. Uh, then in 2003. Uh, there's further erosion of the rights, uh, something called preferential rent, which still exists today. And what that is, is a landlord under rent stabilization laws can charge up to a certain legal amount, uh, but they have discretion. They can say, look, if I can charge you $1,000 by law, I can also charge you under that. Um, so let me give you the rent for 500 Great. If you're a tenant, that's a good deal for you. You get the rent at a cheaper price. The problem is in 2003, we made those preferential rents temporary so that the landlord can now raise it up to the legal amount any time that they see fit on that lease renewal. So if you got in under $500, but on the next lease renewal, they say, well, actually, um, it's pretty lucrative around here. And because we have vacancy decontrol, and if I raise the rent, I can deregulate it, um, I'm going to raise it up to $1,000. Now, $1,000 may still be a good deal in that neighborhood, but for you, your rent has just doubled. What I say to people is that I didn't get a trust fund, but I got an apartment that allowed me to not go into severe amounts of debt to join the professional class as a young New Yorker. Otherwise, I would have been forced out, you know, like a lot of people, without this apartment. I mean, everyone's lived in this apartment. Harry has lived in this apartment. <laughs> Harry's yeah. wife has lived in this well, apartment. I mean, I'll move in. It's right, right, just right, to exactly. like make the podcast complete. But right. like, so, so what are the racial implications? Because something tells me 
mm-hmm. <laughs> knowing what I know about this city, this state, and this country, do we have numbers and percentages on how that's possibly disproportionately affected communities of color, and also people in particular boroughs. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It's a common refrain that whenever a community catches a cold, the people of color have pneumonia. Everything is worse for us, right? And so if you look at the current state of rent regulation right now, the highest increases in rent have been in communities of color in the city, right? And so we're talking about the Bronx. We're talking about the South Bronx in particular. We're talking about Central Brooklyn. We're talking about Upper Manhattan, right? And so um, even in my district, uh, Community Boards 8, and nine have had some of the highest rent increases in the entire city, predominantly uh, communities of color. And so, you know, I grew up in a rent-stabilized apartment. I still live in a rent-stabilized apartment. My story is not possible without my mom having that security, knowing that the rent wasn't going to go up a disproportionate amount and that there was some sort of regulation there. When you take away that security for our people, we have displacement that has disproportionate impacts, right? If you don't have a place, if your housing is in disarray, your whole whole life is in disarray. And so we talk about our education system where we have one in 10 students that are attending a school that don't have housing security. So you're supposed to expect our kids to learn. um, And we know that when you have housing issues, there's no way that you're going to be able to focus in school. And so this to me is really uh, an existential crisis. It is a civil rights issue of our time. It is the reason why I'm so incessant about how I talk about this, because the implications are dire. What I also think is that a lot of people don't realize that there are working poor in immediate danger of going into the shelter system, that the shelter system is not just full of people you see on the subways that have been like lost, that have fallen outside the shelter system. The shelter system is also broken. I mean, that's a whole other episode, but there are a lot of people in danger of losing their housing and not necessarily people that have the time to go down to housing court and take the hours, weeks. I had a friend, you know, there's a lot of crappy landlords in the East Village um, and there's a great tenants rights organization called Goals, good old Lower East Side. Now, she had to deal with her water getting shut off. I mean, they'll do this to senior citizens. They'll do this to communities where, in general, the adults in the house have to be at work all day. So you don't have time to go down, file all the crazy amounts of paperwork takes to get to housing court and to fight a lot of these landlords trying to up your rent or just like make you live in Mm -hmm. ridiculous conditions. My landlords are pretty good for different reasons. Um, They're like the children of, of a single proprietor that owned the building for a long time. The building was full of his friends, like old Italian people. And so the sons feels like some kind of responsibility, even though they're business has expanded a huge amount. Obviously, I have turned my apartment into a sculpture, and they kind of just shake their head at me. Um, (laughs) This is something, though, that in any other situation would have gotten someone removed, like, immediately. Right. Well, that's why I asked about the racial implications. The the widespread housing insecurity across the nation, Mm -hmm. but obviously, especially in major cities, where now that young white people want cities again this housing crisis is just on steroids because for so many years it was cities were quote unquote abandoned. It's like, no, there was like white flight, there was middle class flight, but you know, marginalized communities were quote unquote left behind. Mm -hmm. And now that that's no longer the case, what worries me is that, you know, in New York, you can make $60,000 and barely scrape broke. Yeah. Like, you can make one hundred sixty thousand yep. dollars, honestly, and, and depending you what your family kids? structure mm-hmm. is, I mean, you could, you know, you're, you're too rich to be poor and too poor to be rich. And so, you start off saying that like people stop you on the street and mm-hmm. kind of talk to you about issues in your community. Do people understand kind of the difference between like what you can do in your capacity as a state senator versus what 
a city council member does versus a state legislator versus the U.S. congresswoman who you share your district with. I mean, like, how do you break it down for people, sort of what you do, what you're in charge of, and right. kind of what's what's above your pay grade, if you yeah, will? Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. Most people don't. <laughs> Most people can't tell the difference, right? I've been called every single elected official, <laughs> like, yo, congressman, councilman. Um, you know, like people, people have no clue, right? They assume you're elected official. They don't know what the level. And that's fine because most people are not in the weeds like we are, right? And most people have like real life problems. To, and most people don't know basic civics. That's right. Which is probably deliberate yeah, that's on exa- the behalf of a lot of elected. That's, exa- that's exactly right. And so I actually frame my role in the housing context. So when I was knocking on doors and when I talk to people now, I say that, do you know that it's actually the state legislature that decides the housing laws for Brownsville and Crown Heights? Which is, I think, pretty ridiculous uh, Mm -hmm. because we now have to negotiate um, with folks that are not our allies, folks that don't live in these communities who who will be casting a vote that would be very consequential for the people that look like us. And so I really frame it in that context. And I say, you have to hold your state representatives responsible, particularly for housing, uh, because all of our housing, our affordable housing is really decided by state law. I know that one of the bills that you're sponsoring is about extending some of the protections that New York has, you're also looking at improving those statewide. Is that the answer, or spoiler, is the correct answer, 51st state, GTFO, <laughs> all the rest of you. Right, I think we got, we have like two or three bills from our friends on the other side of the aisle for their like splitting the state into three or having like some of the upstate folks um, secede from, from our state which you know I'm not really going to comment on uh, but you know I think that <laughs> do it people say all types of things on this podcast you can let us know it's only uh, which us I, which I think is I think is a joke right because the city is the economic engine of the state and so right. let's let's be real it's like about slow that. down upstate yeah, right, right, you like, got like, yogurt and you got right, some prisons like, like, like pump the brakes like, I think you already get in trouble for saying that sorry, sorry. Yep. Should the city have more autonomy when it comes to rent regulations, for instance, and and, in terms of its powers in general? And is there a chance that a Democratic state legislature would actually restore some of this power to the city? So so I think that that is a conversation that is going to happen. I think um, um, not necessarily this session, uh, because as you mentioned, we are looking to expand the protections of rent regulation. What There's a misconception that it's just the folks in Brooklyn and the Bronx that are being pressed by gentrification and other economic forces driving people out. The truth is, is that in Rochester and mm-hmm. in Buffalo and in Kingston mm-hmm. and in Utica, that there are, they're being pressed as well. But they have no protections. They have no rent regulations. And so that's why we have one of these bills to expand the Emergency Tenant Protection Act because all of this operates from the fundamental mental principle in my mind that housing is a right and that right should not be determined by your geography in this state and so if we um if we can all agree that people should be housed uh then i think that we should do everything in our power to make sure that they can do so in an affordable way you know we talk about the homelessness problem like there are a lot of folks that like, you're a paycheck away from being in the shelter. These people come to our office. These are our constituents, right, who don't look like it and who, when you see them on the street, they don't look like they're on the brink of homelessness, but they are. And I think that that is happening all throughout our state, and it's important for us to expand those protections. Well, I mean, that's what the government shutdown showed us, just how many people work one paycheck away from essentially destitution. Now, now the Democrats have the majority in the state Senate and the state legislature. 
Do you feel like you're making inroads, building those coalitions with some of your upstate Democrats to help them see your point of view as far as housing being This right? is This has been one of the most heartening things about being in the legislature, right? A lot of folks said, um, you're going to go to Albany, and Albany's terrible. I They're, usually say it's a cesspool of degenerates. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Present uh, company excluded. <laughs> uh, but I have... I have been able to build relationships with folks that I wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. And these are people that live outside of New York City and the metropolitan region. Uh, and they have showed me that there are very real concerns there as well. One of the bills that we're, that, that are being sponsored to expand the protections of rent regulation is done by my colleague Neil Breslin, who is the representative for Albany. Uh, and he has recognized that these are issues that are happening in his district mm-hmm. as well. And so what is unique about this Housing Justice for All Coalition is that is in an upstate, downstate, east state, center state, uh, whatever geographic um, division you want to call it, we're all unified on this. Mm -hmm. And that is unusual in advocacy. Um, Usually it is really regional and it is really tribal. uh, But in the case of housing, because it's such a universal principle and everyone needs it, we have seen, uh, I think, a unity unlike we've seen in years past. So where's our good friend Andrew on this? So so the governor, I think, has expressed, you know, in his executive budget, he said um, he wants to see some rent reform. He mentioned vacancy decontrol, mentions some sort of reform to preferential rent and examination of just the rent regulated stock. I do not like to be in the business of guessing where the governor is. Um, I think no one on this planet knows what the governor thinks except for the governor. Um, and But what I do know is that he is going to have a disproportionate uh, power over this process um, just by virtue of the office. We saw that with the budget process. Um, this is constitutionally, we have a very strong executive in the state of New York. And so what I think our role is as a legislature, as a co-equal branch of government um, is to also exert our power and use the tools that we have been given uh, by our constitution and politically. The people gave New York a democratic state legislature on folks like myself who ran explicitly on changing our housing laws. Uh, And so we are going to be making a lot of noise on this. I'm actually very optimistic about the reforms that we're going to get. Past noise, what's going to end up on the governor's desk this year? Because we're out of the budget season, right. and this is lawmaking, law-writing season. Yep. That, that is your co-equal power. That's right. That's right. You know, there are these nine bills that are on the housing justice agenda, one of, of which I sponsor. A number of my colleagues sponsor the others. I think we have seen already widespread support for this, right? And so we saw the assembly come out pretty strongly um, uh, for most of the platform. Leader Stuart Cousins has uh, said publicly and privately uh, that this is going to be a priority for Senate Democrats. And so uh, we're going to get in the weeds as soon as we get back to Albany on Monday. Um, And and I'm really excited about that. You know, I serve on the housing committee uh, in in the state Senate, and and that's going to be, you know, where a lot of this action happens as well. So my wish is that we send all nine bills uh, passed in their current form to the governor um, uh, for him to make a decision. Your expectation, though. I got a couple questions here. One, is a universal rent stabilization even possible? Two, how much do you think some of uh, these units are going to be like re-controlled mm-hmm. that have been, you know, decontrolled or destabilized? Um, and also walk us through some of these bills. This was a video game. <laughs> Right, it's, and you're a landlord. You're playing landlord. You have like a, a level up of like twenty seven hundred dollars. What is the threshold number? Now? It's twenty. It's like twenty seven seven five. Yeah. So so you hit twenty seven seven five, and suddenly you're in infinite play. 
you can go up a little bit each time and then the money's yours. And one of the crazy things is you do these renovations because that's part of what allows you to increase the rent. Those renovations are also often like a GTFO double up. Like, hello, mm -hmm. you rent stabilized folks. Um, your apartment is full of dust and uh, the elevator's broken and it's sort of scary going in and out. Mm -hmm. um, if you leave, I get to bonus level and free play much, much more quickly. So it just seems to me like, like this game has been broken. Rigged. Um, no, I completely agree. And I think I, I'll, I'll be able to respond and answer some of the questions that were asked um, by Alex. So this goes to two of the bills that are, that are, that are in our nine-bill package. Uh, reforming MCIs, which are major capital improvements. As the law currently stands, if a landlord makes an improvement to a building, a capital improvement that allegedly benefits the entire building, they can raise the rent forever. Uh, and also there's something called IAIs. Forever, ever? Forever, ever. Forever, ever. That's right. That's right. Um, so, so that's one law that 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 goes exactly to what Harry is saying. Uh, there's also individual apartment improvements (IAIs), uh, which allows the landlord to raise the rent in that unit as well. We want to eliminate and or reform those processes. Uh, we have seen that it has been fraught with fraud. So there is no one that checks whether or not these things are actually legit. There was a story that came out in Cranes about a repair to a bathtub that was like like almost $10,000. Uh, there's no verification. We have doorknobs that are costing $3,500. One cracked <laughs> tile in a in a bathroom and they'll say it costs like $2,000. Exactly, exactly. So so we have two bills addressing that. Uh, but we also have uh, some bills that, that address what we spoke about earlier. We want to expand the protections. So the Emergency Tenant Protection Act, uh, which we refer to this as passed in 1974, the system by which most of our rent regulation exists in this state, uh, we want to expand that to the rest of the state to allow counties to opt in. This doesn't make it mandatory. If you look at Nassau County and Westchester County and Rockland County, which also fall under the ETPA, not every city and town and village in those counties uh, have opted in, right? But we want to give them the option to. So we want to expand that. Uh, but we also want to look at something called just cause eviction, right? And, and that says uh, that grants an automatic lease renewal unless there's just cause for there not to be. Right? And, and again, we, we are saying here that housing is a right and people should be entitled to that um, unless they're being a bad actor. But we're also looking at some of the remedies that you have as a tenant when you are overcharged. So one of the bills that I have and we talked about earlier, that four-year look back to challenge your rent hike, uh, that was something that was instituted in 1997. Uh, we think that it is unfair for you uh, to be only able to see a four-year rent history you should be able to look uh, at the entirety of that rent-regulated unit's history. And, you know, I think that we have an opportunity um, not just to expand rent regulation, uh, but to strengthen the protections. Uh, and, I, and I'm optimistic that we can get a lot of it done. What about rolling back the Erdstadt law? Uh, so that is not on our current bill package. It is something that has been discussed, um, I think, uh, pretty frequently amongst housing advocates. And it's something that I do think that we are going to take up in the future. Uh, but I think that if we are having a conversation around expanding tenant rights throughout the entire state, we should have the state legislature be the decision maker in that process. And then let's get to um, who should be making so, the local decisions. So you think that for the time being, the state legislature should should still be foremost in the rent regulation decision making for both the city and the state? I think that's right. Okay. 
It's a particular kind of knowledge you have, I think, when you grow up in one of these units. So right now, one of the people in this building passed away, and she had this spectacular apartment. She was like a punk rocker from the 70s. <laughs> I sound super old. But, uh, you know, her apartment's pink with, like, stars painted on it and all these different posters and things like that. Now, they're going to repaint that apartment, and they're going to put in some new flooring. And... They, again, my landlords are really good, you know, to their uh, stabilize and rent control units, but they are going to gut that apartment and they're probably going to pay a tenth of what they use to, you know, everybody, it's New York. Everybody's Mm going to inflate the receipts Mm -hmm. a little bit, especially if it's going to get them a higher rent. Mm -hmm. Um, And when that happens on a grand scale, when it happens in neighborhoods where people aren't paying attention, I mean, I'm a professional that can work from home. Uh, I can pay attention to these things. When you, again, when you have a working families, they don't have the time. Um, And I just wonder, especially in upstate New York, especially Mm -hmm. in places where there aren't a lot of uh, jobs and like I don't even know what some of the issues are. Are they akin to the city when mm-hmm. you go further upstate, like Kingston? You mentioned and Hudson. Well, Hudson's kind of fancy, but no, they are. Uh, they, they're going through the same things that we're going through. And, and, and as you said, there are pockets across the state that are more economically depressed than what we have here in the city. And I think this speaks to two things. A lot of times, the real estate industry says, well, if we get more regulation and if we strengthen these laws, that you are going to disincentivize investment in New York, everyone's going to walk away, which to me is a complete joke. It's a complete joke. I don't think so. um, uh, People are beating down the door to get in the city. And in fact, the housing demand has been higher than it's ever been. We need more housing. Uh, and so that demand will be there. You know, these economists like to say, oh, well, uh, the, con- the, the economics of rent regulation doesn't work out. The demand is going to be there. The supply is not there. And so um, folks are not going to walk away from New York, they're, uh, New York City, but they're parts of the state where they have walked away uh, uh, and where people uh, do not have the same amount of economic activity. They are more vulnerable uh, to some of the abuses uh, that, that we've seen. There are these kind of shell Twitter accounts where it's like rent regulation for everyone. And when you go on them, I'm not going to call them out specifically because I don't want to be. But when you go on them, what you realize is it's like poor Jimmy bought this building full of rent control tenants. And now those rent control tenants want to keep their rents down. And he is sad. And this is the part I'll flag with the uh, with the post in case they want to editorialize here. So, 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 what do you say to poor Jimmy? Yeah, so this has uh, been interesting. I think I saw one of the first of these ads on Twitter uh, that was like this big, fancy video that was very well cut that made the case for the small property owner. And let, let me be clear on something here. We are not trying to attack landlords writ large. There are good landlords. There are good property owners. There are folks that grew up in these same neighborhoods uh, that they own property in. Uh, what we are saying fundamentally um, is that if you are a good tenant, you deserve an affordable place to live. That is the premise. Now, let's look at the numbers because they like to say, well, the, the economics don't work. You look at what a distressed property is, and dis- distressed property meaning that they are um, not taking in enough rent, but the operating and management costs is higher than that, right? And so the amount of rent-stabilized units and in, in properties in this city that are distressed, again, that aren't taking enough rent, it's 5%, right? 5%. It's, it's 5%. Now, in 1991, that number was 15%. 
Okay, so we are seeing record low distressed properties, but we have seen the loss of affordable housing units uh, in the universe of 300,000. This, to me, speaks to exactly why we need this regulation. Uh, We need to keep our tenants in because the economics do work. People say that, well, these small property owners are living on the fringes. You can fact check me. Uh, This is the Rent Guidelines Board. They put out a report every single year. The report for last year just came out. So please go check it. You look at the average income and rent that you take in from a rent-stabilized unit, property owner gets somewhere around $1,300, right? Okay, great. How much does it take to operate that unit on average? Uh, It's about $800. So we're looking at a $500 to $600 profit that you are making per unit. Um, And so when I see the video of Jimmy, right, um, it's not that Jimmy's living on the fringes, uh, per se. They are still getting, uh, they're still making profit. We're not trying to say we want to take all of your your money away. We are about protecting our tenants so that they can stay in um, and that they can continue to be a solid revenue stream in a way that doesn't displace them. I mean, my thing is like keeping a healthy professional, young professional class that actually has the means to feel safe in their housing while they take the entry level position and they don't they aren't forced into other kinds of jobs that are like that are not in their field or not in their industry just to make absorbent rents like we're losing our our native professional class mm-hmm. um in the city so so this i think will be a kicker thank you again for coming in and taking the time but if this has been a crisis since world war ii and we've had all sorts of tighter and then looser regulations. Why is more regulation the answer? Because I think if we look back to how we started um, and how we protected our tenants, uh, we are living in a very different city from when we had mostly rent-regulated units uh, to what we have now, which is a weaker system that is constantly being eroded by, I I think, uh, what has been special interest influence in Albany. Uh, Exactly to the point that was just made, we are losing the fabric of our city. Uh, And this affects not just the people that live in buildings, it affects our homeowners as well. Our homeowners want to be in communities that are stable. They want to see our young professionals thrive. They want to be able to see that same person that they see on the corner, that same person that they see at the store. Uh, But right now, as it exists, that person cannot afford to stay here. Uh, And so this isn't just about keeping rents down. This is really about the future of our city and who can afford to stay here. It's about the fabric of our city. Um, And I want to see as many people have the story that I had uh, because I was able to grow up in a rent-stabilized unit. I want to see that continue to flourish. So how many days do we have until these bills are voted on? Where can people go to to find out more details about the bills that you're proposing. We have 53 days, uh, June 15th, uh, until the rent laws expire um, because I have an excellent communications team. We are doing countdowns on our social media, uh, so please do follow us to get updates on, on what's happening. All of the nine bills can be found there. You should also look at the Housing Justice for All Coalition. That has a pretty detailed uh, explanation of the laws that we're trying to push for. And just stay tuned. Uh, you're about to see activity, I think, unlike what we've seen in many years past in Albany, and I'm very optimistic about what's going to happen. Thank you so much for joining us. I do want to just give a quick shout out, and can you remind the folks before we leave. On Friday, I will be helping the Girl Scouts Troop 6000. And so some people know them as the quote unquote homeless Girl Scouts Troop, but obviously tying into a lot of the housing Mm -hmm. issues you raised. These are 
all girls who are in transitional homes um, and they do not have permanent housing. And because of that, they're a special troop comprised of girls across the five boroughs. Um, and they're selling Girl Scout cookies this week, uh, today, tomorrow, and Friday. Harry's just peeling right. bills off. Give him money. Stop. Stop. This oh. <laughs> um, but uh, at the Kellogg's for Cafe on 17th Street at Union Square. What was it's the name a, of that? The Kellogg's Cafe. I guess it's like they sell cereal normally. Um, but <laughs> there's, like a, there's a space where you can like have events. So the Girl Scout Troop 6000 um, will be selling their cookies. I, love, I found that all my friends like Thin Mints, and I'm just devastated. Um, but if you want to support girls who are in um, transitional housing and, and really just trying to have the same great, amazing Girl Scout experience that a lot of our listeners have had, please come out and support. Ooh, what is this, Harry Siegel? Harry Siegel just... What is this for? We'll also have the information inside the article about this episode uh, on FAQ.NYC. Perfect. You want a whole bunch of Thin Mints? Thin Mints for our guests, please. Uh, our good guests. Bro, I'm just so <laughs> those disappointed. Those nasty peanut buttery ones Simonas for our bag. Or whatever those are the only way to go, coconut, people. But I will coconut. just... FAQ.NYC is brought to you with support from Civil, a blockchain company working to reinvent the economics of journalism. This episode was recorded in Alex Lynn's rent-stabilized apartment. Thank you to Zelnor Myri and to Adam Kamara for engineering. Toot toot! FAQNYC is headquartered at the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research. Thanks for listening. Support us. Uh, love us on social media. Give us Dap in the Street. Dap in the street. And we'll see you soon. All right, we ready to rock and roll? I think we are ready to rock and roll. Okay. Hi, I'm Christina Grant. No, we're not going to do it. Oh, I'm so using that. Hi, I'm Alex Brooklyn. <laughs> Who are we here with? No, I used to do the morning announcements at my high school. And I was like, hi, it's Christina Greer. It's time for school to begin. Please stand for the prayer and pledge. And the, and the principal was always like, Chrissy, please use your regular Please use your regular And I'm like, boys, soccer's canceled today. And he's like, Chrissy, regular announcements, boys.